Well, good morning, church. Welcome. Welcome, welcome. If you're new to the church, uh, my name is Greg, and I'm just one of the pastors here, and glad you could be with us. I really hope to meet you uh, personally soon. Um, but I want to I start off this morning by just spending time in prayer. And so I want to invite you, would, would, would you just um, join me? Let's bow our heads, and let's uh, just really open up our hearts to the Lord right now. And I want to encourage you to actually pray. You pray for your heart to be opened up. Ask the Lord to give you a heart of humility, one that's going to be ready to receive uh, what he's saying this morning. So let's pray. Now, if you wouldn't mind, if you would pray for me and ask that the Lord would speak through me so that we would hear him. So, Lord, this is the prayer of our hearts. We pray that you hear us. And we ask that right now your word would sanctify us, and Lord, that you would wash us and purify your bride. May we be the beautiful bride that we were meant to be as your church. And so we give you our hearts and our minds, and we pray this in Jesus' name. We all say, amen, amen. We're in Ephesians 5 today. Um, hopefully you're there already, verses 1 through 14. Uh, but before we get into the text, I want to uh, introduce you to... Uh, my son, many of you guys have met Evan, but here's a video that I pulled from about 10 years ago. I took this about 10 years ago, and what happened was I had walked into his playroom, and I caught Evan doing something that melted my heart. He's about three years old at the time. He climbed up onto his uh, little coffee table, made it his stage. He took his Fisher-Price microphone and a little ESV Bible, and he started preaching his first message. Now... At three years old, you have a very limited vocabulary. So I want to show you him preaching, but I went through the painstaking task of listening carefully and translating every word he was saying. So check out Evan's first message. Yeah, that's my boy. That's my boy. I, I love that. I, I love when my son copies me. He sees what I do, and then he copies me. But like all preachers, uh, he's not perfect. He's still in process. Um, it wasn't too long ago that I heard Evan talking harshly to his sisters. And he, he spoke to him in a tone that caught me off guard, and he says, Pick your stuff up off the floor. You guys always keep your clothes off the, on the ground. Pick it up. And I was like, Evan, 
you don't talk to your sisters like that. You're not their dad. Where, where did you learn that? And it, was, and it was his mom. It was his mom. <laughs> no, it was a very convicting moment because I realized he got that from me. He's copying me. And I realized, love it or hate it, that's what children do. They take after their fathers. Knowingly sometimes, and sometimes unknowingly, they copy and imitate their fathers. Now, as Christians, we are given a new identity in Christ. We're reborn in Christ, and as children of God, we are to imitate not our earthly fathers, but we're to imitate our heavenly father. And so in Ephesians chapter 5, let me read you the first two verses. This is the introduction for today. He says in verse 1, he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Those two words right there, fragrant offering and sacrifice for a Christian in Ephesus at the time, that draws up a, a picture of what worship was. It alludes to worship. In, in the city of Ephesus, there were over 50 gods that you could worship, and it was through offerings and sacrifices. And yet, as children of God who worship our Heavenly Father, our way of worship is by the way we walk, how we imitate Him. And so I want to give you the main point, the takeaway truth for today. I want to give it to you now. Here's what it is. I'm going to bring it back. We're going to call it the TAT, the takeaway truth. Um, a TAT is something that you want just inked on your heart, permanently impressed on you, uh, taken from the Word of God. And here it is. Our walk is a reflection of the one we worship. Our walk is a reflection of the one we worship. And for the rest of this passage, I want to give you a, a picture of what it looks like to walk in his way, okay? So let's continue on in verses 3 through 5. Paul says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let's pause right there. If you would highlight those three words, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, we see that in verse 5, he repeats those three things again. And because it was an issue for them, we're going to make an issue of it today because it's relevant among us today. Now, people back in, uh, actually, in our day, today, in 2023, you've probably heard people say, man, things are getting so bad these days. Like, morality is going down the drain. Everything's getting worse and worse in our world. And you you've might have said that. I know I've said that before. But the reality is what we're experiencing in our world today is really nothing new. Even in the 60s and 70s here, here in the U.S., if you lived through that era, you know that there was the sexual revolution and the se sexual liberation movement, and it was so different than what the 40s and 50s looked like, and it seemed like immorality was exploding. But even at that time, Francis Schaeffer, who's a philosopher, he said that the Western world is simply returning or seemingly returning to the paganism of the Roman Empire. In other words, what he was observing was that during the Roman Empire, there, there was all kinds of sexual immorality 
going is rampant in the Roman Empire. In places like Ephesus, for example. Ephesus was the place where you would find the Temple of Artemis, one of the ancient wonders of the world. And this was dedicated to the goddess Artemis, who was the goddess of fertility, and so much of their life and their culture revolved around honor of the goddess of fertility. Then you have gods like Dionysus. Dionysus was the god of wine and of festivities, and so they would have all these parties, these festivals in his honor. There were all kinds of sexual songs and dancing in the streets, orgies, sexual acts in honor of him, drunkenness and ecstasy, debauchery in honor of him. And so not only was it present and prevalent, it was celebrated. It was oftentimes a form of worship in the Roman Empire. So these believers now in Ephesus who have a new identity in Christ, as children of God, they are called out of the darkness and are to walk in a new light, and yet that temptation is still all around them. And so Paul addresses the ways in which they're to walk out of darkness, three particular deeds that are just as relevant to us today, and those three things he names are sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. So let's take a look at what he's talking about. So the first, if you're taking notes, that we'll look at is sexual immorality. He names sexual immorality. Now the word that he uses in the Greek language is the word porneia, right? That's where we get the word pornography. But in, in this text, what porneia refers to is any unlawful or unsanctioned sexual activity. In other words, in essence, it's, it's any kind of sexual activity or behavior outside of the context of marriage, outside of the context of the covenant relationship between husband and wife. So that includes heterosexual or homosexual practices that are outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. That includes premarital sex, which is sex with someone who's not yet your spouse, or extramarital sex, which is sex with someone who is not your spouse, or incestuous sex, or bestial sex or virtual sex, anything outside the context that God created it for, which is marriage. Let's, let's agree, sex is not bad. Let's agree that sex is not bad, it's not immoral, it is not unlawful, it's not filthy, it's not impure, right? In fact, look at verse 4 again, sandwiched between verses 3 and 5 and verse 4, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. So we, we know as Christians, we shouldn't be joking about sex. We shouldn't have crude or crass language or uh, joking in our mouths or among us as we fellowship. We know that, but why? Why? And I believe it's because when we make fun of something, we take away its seriousness. We, we cheapen sex. We water it down as if, as if it's a joke when it is actually sacred and, and sanctified. It's holy. He says instead of crass and crude joking and filthy language, he says instead give thanksgiving. What does thanksgiving have to do with that? Well, the more you give thanks for something, the more you realize, man, this thing is a gift. God has given it to us. And when you realize it's a gift from Almighty God, a holy God, you realize, man, this is a sacred, sanctified gift. And so sex 
is a good thing. God loves sex. He loves us having sex. He created it. It's beautiful to him when it's used according to his design, according to his purposes in the context of marriage. My family uh, knows this, uh, that I'm sharing this. It's, it's probably one of my favorite analogies to help draw a picture of, of something in proper context. So my kids, all, all three of them, um, for some reason, it's just like innate in them. It's wired in them, especially Evan. When they were little babies and toddlers, they loved, for some reason, loved stroking mommy's hair. They would, they would stroke mommy's long and soft hair. I said, why do you love her hair so much? She says, because it's long and soft, long and soft. He doesn't want daddy's short and hard, short, short and crunchy. He wants mommy's long and soft. And so it would like soothe them and put them to sleep. As soon as they started stroking it, they would knock out. And then in the middle of the night, they would wake up and subconsciously, they would start looking for mommy's hair. And once they found it, it would put them right back to sleep. Incredible. Anybody else like that? Any other of your kids were like that? Some of you, okay, some of you guys know what I'm talking about. But, but the crazy, it, it was so annoying to my wife. She, she contemplated chopping off her hair, tying it in a ponytail, and, and fetch! Like, get away from me, right? Like, go! Because they were always doing it. But then, there'd be times when we were trying to give Evan a bath. And so we'd fill the bathtub with water, and we'd tell him to jump in the bath. And he'd be like, no, no, no. And he would fight against it. Like, Evan, get in the bath. No, no, no. Why? Mommy's hair. Mommy's long and soft hair that sheds is on the wall or in the drain. And, and he's like, ew, yucky, yucky, yucky. But I'd be like, bro, I thought you like long and soft. I thought, I thought you want that. He, no, yucky. And for, for a three-year-old, he even understands that it's beautiful when it's where it should be, in the right context. That's mommy's head. That's where it's pleasing and desirable and loving, lovable. But out of context, it's unpleasant, and he wants nothing to do with it. Doesn't even want to look at it. And in the same way, God has created sex in a proper place within parameters. And when it's there, it's beautiful. It's, it's desirable. And yet out of context, to the creator, it is unpleasant, and it is immoral, porneo. And so Paul says it's not to be found among God's people. And apparently sexual immorality was very prevalent even among believers in the Ephesian church. Why? Because it was such a part of the culture and the world that day. And because we know it's such a big part of our world today, it's, it's prevalent even in the church today. And I assume that it is a struggle and an issue for many of us who walk with Christ. And if that's you... I don't know who the Holy Spirit is speaking to right now. Maybe, maybe as you're watching this, you're feeling the Lord nudge you. But if that's you, I pray that you would know the grace and the compassion and the kindness of Christ. And I pray that you would know his grace and compassion through the body of Christ. And so listen, if you are dating and maybe you're struggling with premarital sex, if you're married and you've committed extramarital sex. Maybe you're single and you're struggling with heterosexual or homosexual sin or virtual sin or any sin outside of God's intended design, then I pray that by the power of God today that we would be able to bring it to light 
and we would walk in his light. And listen, if that is you, if, if you are willing to bring it to light, I pray that you would know the compassion and kindness of our God. I'm reminded of Proverbs 28, 13. Proverbs 28, 13 tells us this. It says, one who conceals his wrongdoings will not prosper, but the one who confesses and abandons them will find compassion. The one who conceals and hides his wrongdoings, his sins, can keep some in the darkness, will not prosper. You will not overcome its power and its grip on your lives, but the one who confesses and abandons them, brings it to light, not just confesses, but repents from it and walks away from it, will find compassion. Another version of the Bible says, you'll find mercy. And so listen, if you are willing to confide in someone, maybe confess it before God or before a brother or sister and bring it to light, listen, church, we will not shun anyone and we will not shame anyone. Can I get an amen, church? And so if somebody confides in you and in courage, they come and confess to you what they're struggling with, we will not shun anyone and we will not shame anyone. But we will show everyone the compassion and the grace of Christ as we walk together in his light. Knowing that we all fall short and we all struggle with something. And so we will walk together in his light. And I pray that if, that if you have been struggling or maybe you've done something in the past and that guilt and that shame plagues you, that the Lord gently leads you today into the light. And I pray that the Holy Spirit right now is, is nudging on your heart to confront it and confess it. Some of you guys, your hearts are beating right now. Your hearts are pounding, and you're nervous, you're shaking your legs, or your palms are sweaty because you feel something happening. And I pray that, that the Holy Spirit is actually ministering to us right now. And so, church, we, we walk with each other in the light of his victory. And so we know that we're supposed to avoid sexual morality. Okay, very clear here. But then he goes on and he says, and all impurity. So let's talk about impurity. And it's like Paul wants to cover the entire spectrum, right? He's leaving no stone unturned. And I pray that the Holy Spirit speaks right now because some of us are trying to reason or rationalize. And we tell ourselves, well, it's not actual sex. It's not actual intercourse going on. So I'm okay. And so we try to reason that as long as there's no intercourse going on, I'm not sinning. And yet he says all impurity. And there may be things that you're involved in right now or engaged in right now that you don't define as immorality because no intercourse has occurred. But I want to ask you a question. Would you consider it pure? Would you consider it pure? Better yet, ask the question, would God consider it pure? Like, forget what you define. If, if Christ were here on earth and he were with you in the room, whatever you're doing, whether by yourself or with another person, would he stand there in your presence and nod in approval and say, carry on, carry on. No, good job. I, I approve of that. Or... Would he, you know, flip it, flip it. it. What if Christ were on earth and he were doing the things you're doing? And you walked into Jesus in, in, in the room and you walked in on him. How would you respond to what he was doing? Would you be like, 
Wow. I wouldn't expect Christ to be like that from what I know of him on the word. Like, that doesn't seem Christ-like. Or, or, or Christ walked in on you and saw what you were doing. Would he instead say, come and imitate me? Because I wouldn't be doing that, but imitate me. Would he say this kind of impurity should not be found among God's people? And so the question is, is it pure before the Lord? Imagine with me that this stage is a cliff, and, and here, here's the cliff, and right over the cliff is, is falling over into the realm of sexual immorality, clear sexual sin. We know this is sin. And some of us have no boundaries in our lives except this line that leads right over the cliff. And that's our boundary. And as long as we can mess around here, and as long as I cannot fall over and I can control myself from going over, then I'm good. And yet the reality is that maybe in this area, maybe you shouldn't be caught there either. Maybe this isn't so pleasing to the Lord that you're playing around in this area. Back in Ephesians 2, um, if you were here for that message, we were talking about uh, this illustration of Yosemite Falls. And I said that my friends and I would, would hike up to this waterfall in Yosemite, very powerful, very strong. And when you get to the top of the, the hike, there's actually this river or this uh, rushing water that looks so refreshing. But the reality is if you jump in, you will eventually drift with the current and end up over the falls. And we were saying that you jump in, you do nothing at all. That's the natural movement. You will drift downstream unless you intentionally turn around and move in the other direction. And that's the life of the Christian, right? Well, when you actually hike up there, if you ever do it, you'll actually see a sign, a warning sign. And this is the one right here. And it warns you, danger, waterfall. But what you'll notice is that sign is not right at the edge, at the very limit. And, and, it, and it doesn't tell you there that there's danger. It's actually much further upstream. And let me zoom it in for you. And this is what that sign says. I know you can't read it, so I'll read it for you. It says, watch your step near the water. The rocks are deceptively slippery. Stay out of the water upstream from the falls. If you lose your footing, powerful currents will carry you over the falls. There's no second chance. That's what it says. There's another sign that, that says you will die. That's what it says. And what it's acknowledging is that there's, there's water here upstream, and that water is not what's going to kill you. But if you go into that water, there are currents more powerful than you that will lead you to the place of destruction. And so in the same way, I believe that there are things in our lives that may not be classified in your mind as sexual immorality, but there are still things that are impure, and maybe we shouldn't be playing around in this area. And so maybe there are some of you who aren't looking at full-on pornography, but maybe the images you browse on TikTok or Instagram aren't so pleasing to the Lord and peer before his eyes. Maybe you're not having full-on intercourse with your fiancé or your boyfriend or your girlfriend, but you'll just try to stop just short of it, everything short of it. Maybe you're not having a full-blown affair with your coworker or your neighbor. 
But surely your text with that person isn't something you would allow your spouse to see. And yet you think, as long as I have a lot of self-control and, and I'm very careful and I'm not crossing any line over here and falling into sexual immorality, then I'm good. I'm good. Well, breaking news, church. God isn't watching you as you play close to the line as close as possible without going over. He's not watching from heaven going, well done. Good job. You have amazing self-control. Look at you. Like, you, you are so strong. He is not looking upon you in approval. Just like if you were at Yosemite and you jump in right where the water, that, that sign says, do not go in, and yet you're able to tread and stay in place, a park ranger would not say, impressive, impressive, you are a strong treader. No, he's going to say, get out, get out now. I think about 1 Corinthians 6, 18, where it says, Flee from sexual immorality. Flee. The last time I understood the word flee, that means run. That means move in the other direction. Not go as close to immorality as you can. Flee means run. Not moving toward immorality and, and, and trying to ride the line, but run toward the light. Flee the darkness and sin. I know this is uncomfortable for us to talk about in church, but it is so important that we talk about this in church. We sent out a, 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 an email to all our parents of our kids and our middle schoolers and high schoolers this week, and we said, hey, we're going to be talking about this, so just want to give you parents a heads up, but this is so good to talk about, and, and my heart is I pray that, that our kids come and hear this, because they're going to hear about it, they're going to learn about it in the world. And what the world says about it, and I pray that we would hear about it in church and what God says about it. And so since God is making an issue of it, so should we. Because I realize if we don't talk about it in church, people won't make a, an issue of it in their lives. And so since God makes an issue of it here in Ephesians 5, we're making an issue of it. And so the question is, church, do we care about this? And are we walking in light and in purity? I know a couple personally that when they were dating, um, they made this amazing commitment. They said that we want to walk in the light, and not only did they want to save sex for marriage and avoid sexual immorality, they, they said we, we're going to save kissing for marriage. We will not kiss until we get married because we don't want to, to, to be found in any kind of impurity that's going to lead us to greater sin. Now, that's very admirable. Yeah, you got to give them credit for that. Like, that's, that's great aspirations, great motivation. And some of you guys would argue, well, kissing is not sin. And they, they, they just understood that things can lead to other things and things can lead us into impurity and immorality. So they, they decided that. And props to you. Really high hopes, great, great aspirations. And they tried hard. They really tried hard. To save kiss, kissing for marriage, but guess what happened? Guess what happened? They ended up kissing. You know how I know? Because I saw them. I saw them with my own eyes. I know it was them. It was in public at their wedding before God and family and friends, right after they said to each other, I do. And it was the most pure and God-glorifying 
context in which they share that intimate moment in the context of marriage. Now, I'm not saying that all couples have to do this. That's not in the Bible. It's not saying you have to save kissing from it. No, it doesn't say that. But, but what I appreciate them is when I look at verse 10 in this chapter, verse 10 said, discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, consider what, what pleases him, what honors him. And that's them making decisions to live in the light and to move away from impurities. And so the challenge for us is how do we consider, let's discern what is honoring to him? What does that look like in my life? What does that look like in our context? And how can we please him? Okay, so Paul addresses sexual immorality and he addresses, addresses impurity. And then the third thing that we highlighted earlier in this passage is covetousness. So let's talk about covetousness. Covetousness means greed. It's it's a lust for more. And a lot of times when I've thought about coveting, I've thought about wanting what someone else has. It's that, but essentially what it is is wanting what God hasn't given you, what God hasn't intended for you. So, yeah, it could be wanting someone else's spouse or it could just be simply wanting that house or it could be wanting that position or that possession or this platform. And if God hasn't intended for you, and yet it's this insatiable desire for it that you have, that becomes covetous, and it becomes idolatry. Verse 5, Paul explicitly says that covetousness is idolatry. That's what he calls it. He calls it out. Why? Because you're making an idol out of something you desire so badly, and that greed for that thing and that pursuit of that thing can sometimes become greater than your pursuit of God and obedience to God. Like when I was in seminary, one of the things I learned, um, one of the things that I clearly have kept with me since seminary, I didn't get it from Greek class or Hebrew class, I didn't get it from New Testament class or Old Testament class, but I remember this one class where my pastor, our, our professor told us, young pastors, guard your hearts. Guard your hearts. And he tells the story of this alumni from our school who graduated, became a pastor, just loved the church, loved the ministry, was on fire for God, yet his wife didn't share that same kind of passion. She didn't care about the church as much as he did. And then there, there, there was this, this, this lady in the church who was on fire for God and her husband would come, but he was apathetic. He didn't, he didn't really care. He just went because, it, you know, just to please his wife, but she was so on fire for the Lord and it was causing tension in their marriage. And so she goes to the pastor for counsel, help us in our marriage. What do we do? He, he's so lukewarm and I'm on fire. And they realized that they loved what they saw in each other. And after a counseling session, there was a kindling of, of that fire. And over many sessions, they ended up having an affair. They coveted what they saw in each other, but that wasn't theirs. It wasn't theirs. Now, is it bad to want spiritual companionship? No, that's a, that's a good thing to desire. Spiritual companionship is good. But when a pursuit of a good thing supersedes or, or goes above your love for God and obedience to him, that good thing can become a source of sin. The early church father, St. Augustine, said it's called a disordered love. He calls it disordered love when we can pursue good things, but when your pursuit of that which is good becomes greater than your pursuit of God, then that thing has caused you to sin. So church, we must not covet. Don't go against God by chasing after what he has not given you, at least not yet. 
Now, sometimes I, I go to the gym or I try to go to the gym, and one of the best exercises that I've learned comes from another Christian brother. And he said this. He says, when you go to the gym and you see an attractive girl, and so I want to say this to you. If, guys, if you go to the gym, you see an attractive girl, or ladies, you go to the gym, you see an attractive guy, here's what you do. Great exercise. You turn your head away and you say, not mine, not mine, not mine. It's awesome. It works. You just tell yourself, not mine, not mine. I'm telling you, you put in your reps, you'll see yourself getting stronger and stronger against coveting, stronger and stronger against the t- You just remind yourself it's not yours. Kids, when you're on TikTok and Instagram, you see something that's not yours. If you're at school on campus and you see someone that's not yours, when you're at work and you see a position or a person or a platform that's not yours, if God hasn't given to you, turn away and remind yourself, not mine, not mine, not mine. In fact, I would encourage you to replace it with praise God, praise God, praise God for what he has given you. Look at what he's given you and replace it with thanksgiving. We shall not covet. Best exercise you can do. And so we should avoid sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. I want to go on to verse 5. And let me show you this verse because it's heavy. This is a heavy verse. Look at this. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's terrifying. Does that mean that if I've fallen into any of these sins that I'm not saved, that I don't get the kingdom of God? Well, what's it saying? Because I'm sure there are some of us listening right now, maybe you're at home, maybe you're in this room, who have fallen into sexual morality. I'm sure even more of us have been in an area of walking in impurity. I'm sure even more than that, there's those of us who covet something that that's That's not ours. So does that mean if that's been us, then we are guilty and not saved? That we don't get the kingdom of heaven for eternity? Well, I want to make something very clear, okay? Do not miss this. Remember that Christianity is based on faith. We are saved by grace, not because of what we do, but because of who we believe in. Amen? We're saved by faith because of his grace. I want to make that very clear because we are not saved by what we do or what we've done. It's by his grace alone. Therefore, we don't get unsaved by what we do or what we've done. It's never been based off our deeds. It's always been because of what he's done for us on the cross. But here's the point. If we are saved and truly saved, then we have a new identity. All of us at one point were walking in darkness. This was our life. And when you give your life to Christ by faith, you decide to leave the darkness and now walk into the light. And yet the reality is now that we're walking this way, I get it. Some of us will backpedal and slip back into sin and into darkness. But the evidence of one who is truly faith-filled and truly saved will not feel comfortable here. This is not my home, so we will repent. We will turn around and walk again in the light. 
That's how you know you truly believe in the light and the life of Christ. And then yet some of us, we walk this way as everybody else does when we come into this world. We're in darkness and we fall into sin. And though we've prayed a prayer, we've professed it with our lips, we dwell here. And we are comfortable here. And there's no intention to try to turn around and repent and walk in the light. We just like it here, this is life. Then that means that's your identity. You're not a child of light. You're what Paul calls a son of disobedience. This is who you are. And that's who he's saying has no inheritance of in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And so therefore, children of God, let us walk in the light for we are light. And so Paul addresses these relevant issues that were so relevant to the Ephesian church and is so relevant to us today in this church, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. But now let me turn you to the last few verses for today, verses 8 through 12. And I believe this is the heart of the message, okay? This is the heart of what, what we need to take away. It says in verse 8, for at one time, You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. Highlight those three things, good, right, and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Circle, highlight that word Lord. That means your king, your master, your God. Take no part in the unfruitful work of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. I know that this whole message can sound very much like a morality lesson, like do this, don't do that. Live like this, don't live like that, as if it's legalistic morality. And yet I want to show you this teaching merely isn't merely a moral issue. I believe it goes so much deeper than that. It's a theological issue. Because I know on the surface, it sounds like how you should live, how you should walk, what you should do, but really at the heart of it is who do you worship? Like who do you worship? Who is your God? Who is your Lord? Because it starts from the inside out. I want to show you again the takeaway truth that I showed you at the beginning of the message. Here's the takeaway truth. Our walk is a reflection of the one we worship. We walk this way because of the one we worship. Our moral behavior is only a reflection of the moral standards of the God that we serve. And so my question is, who do you serve? Who is your God? In your heart, who is your Lord? In Ephesus, there were over 50 gods that people could worship. They had plenty of gods. Whoever could give you what you needed or your flesh desired, there's a god for that. You you want babies? Worship Artemis, the god of fertility. You want ecstasy? Worship Dionysus, the god of wine and festivities. You want wit? Worship Athena, the god of wisdom. There's a god for you out there somewhere. And yet Paul says, if you want what is good and you want what is right and what is true in verse 9, then verse 9, he essentially says, then worship the Lord. Consider what pleases the Lord and walk in his light. And so church, who do you worship? Because who you worship impacts what you value and ultimately what you do. And so our call is to walk in the way of the one 
we worship, imitate him. If you think he's worthy, imitate him. Now, I get it. We're not in Ephesus, right? None of us here worship the goddess Artemis. When's the last time you were at the temple of Artemis? No one worships Dionysus. I get that. But listen, I, I know we are all tempted to worship another god with the lowercase g. All of us are tempted to worship this other god in our culture today. The Greek pronunciation of that god, God's name is me. In English, it's me. Me. The God of self, I believe, is the greatest rival to our worship of God who sits on the throne. The God of self. See, Satan deceives our world today just like he deceived them in Ephesus to try to get us to, to bow to another God. And for us, he, he deceives us by trying to get us to, to believe we're our own king. We're the king of our hearts. We serve our desires and serve our own pleasures. Does it please you to sleep with whoever you want, whenever you want? Just do it. Does it make you feel good to be wanted by someone who's not your spouse? Just pursue them. Do you get addicted to comparing yourself on social media or to everybody else around you? Keep at it. Does it feel right just to flip off and rage at the person who just cut you off on the freeway? Just flip it. You do you. You are God of your life. You own your life. You're the king of your heart. You reign on the throne. You do you. And if he can convince us to remove Christ from the throne of our hearts and usurp that authority, then he has us right where he wants us to be. And so, church, I really pray that we're challenged today. I do. I do care that we flee from sexual immorality and that we walk away from impurities and we get rid of all covetousness. I do. But even deeper than that, even deeper, I pray that we live in light of our God. That we step off the throne and we crown Jesus the king of our heart. That he's the center of this place. And may we walk in the way of the one that we worship. Why? Because he's worth it. He's worthy. Amen? I, I want to close with this. Um, Pastor Matt Chandler, he tells the stories of a pastor in Texas. Many of you guys know who he is, but just a really compelling story. When he was in college, he and his friends met this young single mom who wasn't a Christian she was actually known for her promiscuity, would sleep around, and in fact was in, in a, an adulterous affair with a married man much older than her. And yet she came to this turning point in her life where she really wanted to open her heart to God and, and change her, her way of life. And so they invited her to this special Christian gathering where there's going to be a worship band and there's going to be a speaker. So they, they brought her to this, hoping the Lord would speak to her. And so they listened to the music, and that was great. And then the, the preacher comes up, and the preacher says, today we're going to talk about sex. And Matt Chandler was like, oh, man. Like, what do we just bring her to? How is this going to go? And then the preacher, he starts off the message with this illustration. He says, look at this rose. Look how beautiful this rose is. He's like, I, wanna, I want you to smell it. Smell how beautiful it is. I want you to touch it and feel it and, and, and just feel its, its strength and its beauty. And, and then, then pass it around. Pass it around to the person next to you. I want everybody in this room to feel it and touch it and smell it. So he hands it off into the crowd. 
And then he continues to preach on his message about sex. And Matt Chandler says, man, everything he was preaching was everything but the gospel. He's talking about how we should avoid sex because it's, it's dirty and it's wrong and you're going to get STDs. And nobody wants syphilis and herpes. and the, the, It's gross. You don't want that. Stay away. And the whole time, Matt Chandler's saying, what are, you, what are you talking about right now? And he's thinking about this person that they've been trying to minister to. What are, what are you saying? And then at the end of the message, it comes to this crescendo of his message. It was like the big punchline. He says, okay, hey, where's my rose? Bring, bring back the rose. Bring it up here. And then some student comes up with the rose. And by the time he gets it, it's all tattered up. And, and it's falling apart. And leaves are falling off. And he says, now look at this. Who would want this? It's been touched by everybody. Who would want this? This is nasty. And Matt Chandler is sitting there saying, what are you saying? And everything in him wanted to stand up and shout out, Jesus wants the rose. Jesus will take it. Jesus loves the rose. Because that's what the gospel is about. To that I say amen and amen. Think about Romans, where it says, while you were sinners, Christ died for you. He knows what you've done. He knows what you've given into, yet he died for you. I think about 1 Corinthians 6, where it says, you were bought with a price. He came from heaven to earth because he saw that you're worth it. You're worthy to purchase with his blood. I want the rose. And so that's why. I can look at God, and I can look to my Jesus in all my sin and say, you're worthy. You're worth it to me to give all my life, all my guilt, all my shame, and follow you and walk in your way. And for that reason, I pray that we would walk in the light, not out of guilt, not out of shame, not out of coercion, but because he's worthy. And so, church, let's walk in the way of the one that we worship. Amen? Amen. Would, you, would you bow your heads with me? I, I want to ask that we just respond in worship. And worship is basically declaring his worth. That could come through singing. That could come through confession. That could come through prayer. And so what I want to do right now is our worship team's going to come. They're going to lead us in prayer and, and, and singing. But at any time during the next couple songs, if you're willing to pray for someone, I want to ask that you would stand up and just move to the side of the, the, the room where you are or to the back of the room. If you don't have, there's no requirement. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be pure yourself. Simply just be a child of God willing to pray for somebody who needs prayer. That's it. So that, that, that's like everybody in this room, okay? You just got to be willing to pray. And if you're a person who the Lord's just been speaking to your heart and you just want prayer, then I want to invite you to, to get up and, and go to somebody who's standing around the room willing to pray for you, to hear you out. And, and you can ask for prayer for anything. It could, it could be a confession. It could be anything you're struggling with. Or it could just be simply, hey, would you just pray for my family? Or would you pray, I'm sick right now. Will you pray for my sickness? Or 
I got a situation at work. Would you pray for it? It could be as general or specific as you want. It could be regarding this message or something totally different. But I believe the church is called to pray for each other. Think about James chapter 5. It says, confess your sins to one another and you will find healing. I pray that as a church, we break the power of shame. We break the power of, of guilt that, that binds us and keeps us from walking light. And so let's, let's pray for each other. There's compassion to be found. There's victory and mercy and grace to be found. So let's be that church, okay? So I'm going to pray for us now. And once again, as you feel led, if you want to pray for someone, move to the side of the rooms. And if you want to be prayed for, move to the side of the rooms. And if you're in the faith center, I want to encourage you to come into the worship center. Uh, you'll find people here ready and willing to pray for you. But let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the message of your gospel. That in all our sin and brokenness, you saw it worthy to leave heaven, to come to earth, to die for us, to purchase us, to deliver us, to rescue us, and to redeem us, to restore us. Because you just love us that much. And so it's for that reason we, we, we want to walk in your way. So help us to be courageous to bring it to light today. I pray in Jesus' name today, we bring it to light and experience now the victory that you've already accomplished for us. We worship you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name. Amen.